This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. All good? I would like to introduce you to my friend Ren. He's from DC, so he's come a long way just to hang out with us, and he's spending a couple of extra weeks here as well. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about doing things big and broad. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, as Donna said, I kind of want to have this discussion as a think outside the box and let us kind of strip away the thought of just that experiences have to be tied to users. So I've been kind of thinking about this for several years, and this is an open discussion. I, I didn't know that Donna was going to give me the, the ginormous room with a lot of people, uh, but even with a lot of people, uh, if, if, please feel free. Um, uh, chime in. If I don't say something that makes sense or you want to ask a question, please do. This is very informal. Uh, also, um, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit, we're separated by a common language. So uh, if I say something that's American or my American accent uh, uh, has you guessing what I said, please, please let me know. Okay, so I wanted to come up for a model for experience. And I've done work with semiotics, and I don't know if anyone has done work with semiotics or ha has delved into that. Semiotics is the study of, of meaning so that it's universal. So when you make stop signs or the signs for toilets, that uh, you know when you see the stick male figure and the stick female figure that I know that I'm going to a toilet, and that's pretty much universal. So there's a very good model in semiotics to be able to test to see if something is semiotic. And I wanted to kind of almost come up with something for the same thing for experiences. I was playing around with it, and uh, this is what I've come up with. So this is not right, this is not wrong, this is for Ren. And so the experience, this is the person or the thing, the object that is having the experience. And the experience is, is a very thin uh, touch point uh, that is that is produced by an interface. There's always a goal and production. So I like to call this the environment. Everything from the experience all the way back to the what produces the experience. And what we traditionally think of as UX has control from the interface back. There's very little control, if not any, on the experience. Now, we think we have control, but really what we're doing is we're controlling that environment because you could think that you've provided the greatest experience, but if I am Mr. Grumpy Pants today and I don't want to play with your experience, I'm not going to play with your experience. So the focus really is from the interface back to production, and I'll try to work this in as I go along uh, to, to the different bits and pieces as we go and take a look at different kinds of experiences. Okay, user experience. This is the one that we're all used to and the, we, we all work with day to day. And the user-centered design, user experience, user, user, user. Which is fine and it's good and we really, really need to do that. We need to be champions of users. Uh, by the end of this, I'd like to say we need to be the champions of experience as well too. Okay, the, what we normally think of 
as a, a user experience. You have a user, and they have that touch point onto a small piece of, of real estate within an organization. They see the website. They get the product. They may have a problem. They may get customer service. This is the realm of what we try to look at when we're thinking of user experience. But it's more like an iceberg, and we all know that there's a big, hairy piece under of all the different pieces of an organization that it takes to actually get that experience to a user. And that's, this, I think, is a very good starting point in taking a look at outside the box of just user experience because the organization has an experience, too, to be able to, to deliver that service to the user. And sometimes that may be underserved. Uh, the, the goal of getting everything to the user or the user or the customer or whoever uh, that organization serves, that organization may be sub-optimized to actually optimize the experience for the user. Okay, so let's talk about organizational experiences. And I, the, the oracle of Dilbert gives us great knowledge. Um, but really, there are two different goals. The user goal is I want to have a great product. The goal of the company is I want to sell more product. And sometimes those two things really don't match. But I, I don't want to focus on maximizing production output. I want to look at the experience of that organization. And the question may come up, can, we really, can organizations really have experiences? And I'd say yes. This is the Leicester City football team. If you're not into football, this is the David that beat the gigantic Goliath of every other football team in Great Britain. And I would say to you that even though that each individual person on the team had joy in winning, it was that organization that had the experience of winning. And to use the model, uh, so what was the experience of winning? Uh, you had the interface, which was everything that happened within that, the, the match. So you had the match, the fans, the opponent, everything that was going on at that moment that made that experience. The goal, obviously, was to win. But there was a lot more to the production. Everything that it worked, wor worked up to get to that point to be able to have that experience. Now, this is, may not be an experience, and I'm using quotes here, this may not be an experience that we think of uh, as user experience uh, professionals, but nonetheless, it is an experience, and this is why I'm trying to deconstruct experience to be able to go to things that we may be able to apply this to. So uh, at the beginning of the season, maybe if there was an underperforming football team, they may need their... Uh, they have low motivation. Uh, the practices aren't going well. The staff is, is uncoordinated. Uh, you may be called in to actually help. Maybe they may need some sort of, for lack of a better term, intranet or, or, or asset to be able to make their experience to get to winning better. There's uh, an, another... Uh, so th uh, if you have a, con a control center like this, uh, there's also other experiences that may not be so cheery. So, so let's say the Challenger explosion that happened in the 1980s. And obviously this was an experience for those people that were in a room. And if you've ever been in an organization where you've dealt with great tragedy, uh, you will, that experience will, will live with you um, for, for your entire life. I actually was in an operations center um, on September 11th, and the plane that hit the Pentagon was about a thousand feet, flew 
by, uh, by our building. And then we had to actually respond to it. And I'll tell you, the experience, we, we had some, some very good people that had made some very good design decisions in the way that we worked, that we were able to do things very efficiently. But when you have an experience like this, uh, normally it's a triage or uh, a forensics exercise to go back and take a look and say, how can we do things better, as, a, as opposed to maybe preparing for it. Obviously, you want to try and, and be prepared for disaster, but a lot of times you want to look back and see how can we do things better. Okay, so now, what do we want to talk about? What is an organization? An organization is a small group that's designed to do a specific sort of set of tasks. So it could be commercial, like, uh, say, a coffee shop. Or it could be an ad hoc group uh, of a group of people coming together to land a plane. Uh, So you have your air traffic control, you have the actual air crew themselves, and the radar approach control controllers that are bringing the plane in. So an organization doesn't have to be the set, established entity. They can come together, they can, uh, and they can pull themselves apart very easily. Okay, why do we want to capture organizational experiences? Uh, the, the easy one, and it goes, almost goes back to the Dilbert slide, is well, we want to we produce more, we want to be more productive. But it goes beyond that. You want to have a happy staff. One of the goals of an organization, too, is retaining staff. And if your experiences of an organization is terrible as a collective group, everybody comes to work every day and they're upset because uh, things aren't aligned right. Uh, it's hard to communicate. Uh, the, leadership, the leadership intent is not known. Then you're having a bad experience in that organization. So you want to optimize it to make it truly a good experience. Okay, so... You don't want to boil the ocean when you're trying to find certain experiences in an organization. Define what you're looking for very tightly and define your organization very tightly. Uh, A lot of people think that they're in an organization or a group that's doing a certain task or experience a certain experience, but they're not. So uh, the Leicester City football team, uh, the, the the, the greatest booster for the, the football club that's in the stands may say, yes, that's right, I won, I won with Leicester City. No, you didn't. You were in the fan. You were in the stands. So you may have uh, seen the experience with them, but you're not actually a part of that organization. So when you're looking at an organization, make sure that you pick and define your scope very tightly. And as I said before, uh, the, whole, the whole reason for this is you want to have a very productive, and you want to have a, um, a very engaged staff. Okay, so I'm going to use two examples interchangeably depending on, on uh, what, what's best for each bit and piece. But for a coffee shop, uh, a very defined experience would be serving a customer and in the aviation industry, landing a plane. As I said before, you want to determine who's actually the experience or who is actually a part of the experience. And then also you need to know who's in production. And it's very important because, like I said, a lot of times people in production think that they are a part of the experience. So uh, everybody has the supervisor that thinks that they are the ones 
they, it's me that's the most important as the supervisor. Well, no, actually, it's the people that are landing the plane in this, uh, this case. The supervisors are very important, but really, you have to take a look at those three experienced there in this case. So when, when you're taking a look at, at capturing uh, your data from an organization, a lot of it is just like if you're trying to capture it for a user. So you can do things that we, we think of, say, like uh, contextual interviews. Um, and uh, I'm going to go into this a little bit later, but uh, something that's close to a persona. But you can actually use this, a lot of the same things that you do for capturing things for users. It's a little bit more complicated when you're doing it for an organization, though. Uh, one of the things that you may want to do is sync up the timing so that you know what each individual experience is doing uh, in that, that experience. So uh, if you have the technology and the, and the resources to be able to put a timestamp on each individual part is good. Now, when you're landing a plane, you're talking about seconds. So that's going to be a lot more difficult. Uh, in serving coffee uh, for a customer, you may talk about minutes or it may even be hours or days, depending on what part of the experience you're talking about. So something like this, time is very critical at a very small scale, but uh, it's not always the case, uh, say, in a service environment. Okay, asset inventory. Uh, when it comes to the coffee shop, uh, if that barista wants to give you coffee, uh, when they come in the morning, these are all the touch points that this barista may have to deal with to be able to serve you coffee. It may not seem like that to you, but uh, that barista needs to know when they're working. That may come in on the clipboard that the, the uh, managers leave behind for a shift change. Uh, they may need to uh, take a look at different information for there's a new coffee in, and they, they have no idea uh, about the characteristics. They may have to do something else. Uh, if there is uh, an unhappy customer, they may have to pick up the phone to call a manager. So looking at all of the inventory of the objects that are needed for a... Um, an experience is very important, especially in something like this, because if you want to define it, you may want to be able to collapse or optimize uh, any one of these. Okay, then you want to take a look at the physical environment uh, of an organization. So let's say you had a, a call center where a call came in and it had to be escalated and to a supervisor. And the supervisor talks to staff and staff talks among the, each other, and uh, you're, you want to be able to map this. And then you find out that you know, uh, some of it goes by telephone call, some of it goes over the Internet, and then has anybody heard of sneaker net, where you get up from your office and walk to the other office and talk? Well, that may happen every single time. That might actually be you know, a, a routine when you have something like this, and you know, Joe has to talk to Susan and say, you know, the boss is mental. He's asking us to do this. What do we do? So, okay, well, let's get it together in a meeting and actually get somebody else. You have this face-to-face -face meeting, and you say, yes, uh, that escalation is important. We're going to take action. And then you go tell the poor guy that has to actually talk to the customer uh, what to do, which was never in a part of any of that in the, in the first place. And the organization may not know that they're doing this to themselves. So 
uh, being able to take a look at the organization from, say, a 50,000-foot level um, after you've defined what the experience is and taking a look at the asset inventory and taking a look at the physical layout, you can, you can show them something like this to say, yeah, you've got either redundant systems or, or you've got systems that are, that are um, not optimal. Okay, so um, here's another, uh, another artifact that you can do. Uh, this organizational profile, I've tried to come up for a name for something like this. I wanted to call it a, like an Organa uh, after like Persona, but then uh, you sound like a Star Wars geek that, you know, Princess Leia Organa. So if anybody comes up with a great name for a Persona for organizations, please let me know. Um, so I actually do this a lot, and I work for a software company, so our customers aren't individuals, they're organizations. So to go out and capture organizations... Uh, we may want to go into to law or medicine or academia. So we take a look at the different types of organizations within, within those um, sectors, and then we can make organizational, um, we can combine a lot of data and, and make these profiles. And they're just like personas. Excuse me. <coughs> and, and they're just like personas. So that when you want to test it up against your, your, your designs, you have a good idea that a small law firm that has, so let's say, two um, older um, partners that don't deal with tech at all, but they bought tech because they have enough money and they think it's cool, how do you deal with them? So once you do one, you can collect a lot, just like you do with personas, and you have a good data, a good enriched data set that you can do testing off of. So um, just, like, just like personas, treat them just like personas. And you, can, and, and you can interchange, you can break out personas from your organizational. So let's say one of, uh, if we're talking back to the, uh, to the coffee shop, you could have... Um, a persona hanging off of one of these organizational profiles for barista. You could have one for office manager. Um, and if you're, depending on what you're doing, you could even have a persona for customer as well, too. Okay. Enterprise experience. This is where it's not about the enterprise having experience. It's more about how an enterprise manages experiences. Now, an enterprise can have experiences, um, and it will be much like an organization, but or, enterprises are very special organizations. Um, excuse me, I've got something caught in my throat. I'm going to take a sip of water here. Everybody still with me? Good, excellent. So, what is an enterprise? An enterprise is a collection of similar but not fully aligned organizations. And they tend to be universities, government organizations, corporations. And the, the challenges that you have with enterprises are tenfold that you have with, say, just one organization. So it's like herding grease cats, especially when it comes to, to experiences and, and designing and maintaining experiences. Okay, I'd like to talk a little bit here, get a little bit of America on you. Um, Ohio State is a, 
one of the major uh, institutions, uh, learning institutions in the United States. It's a very good school. I've actually been there for conferences before. Amazing campus, a lot of stuff going on. Also has, happens to be one of the top uh, American football schools um, in the country. Big program. Everybody, the, the, the rivalries are just amazing. But uh, if you take a look, the revenue from the football activity is $48 million. That's more than the law school brings in with its tuition and everything that it does and, and the school for social work. And the only thing that's like a juggernaut to it is, is engineering. So when it comes time to, say, redesign the website for the entire university, uh, how do you think that the, the football program has sway compared to uh, law and social work? They have a lot. Um, just, just on an aside, the stadium for Ohio State holds about 103,000 people. That's almost the size of Darwin, I think, uh, when, I, when I did it. Or it could, it could hold almost every single United States Marine Corps Marine. Um, and that's not the largest college football stadium in the United States. I think it's fourth. So, so it's just this big juggernaut on campus. And the funny thing is, is that when we're talking about the experience of Ohio State, what's the mission of, of the university? It's not to throw football games. They're, they're there to, to be an institution of higher learning. So when you have something like this and, and an enterprise like this, the things that you want to do with those organizations is a, it's an exercise of alignment. And then you can, you can map across each one and see where all of the gaps, where the redundancies, and where you may have that juggernaut football, where you may have to t- take action to mitigate so that the, the front page of, of Ohio State University isn't come here for football. Although, believe me, a lot of people uh, would, would love to have that. Okay, cultural experience. So, as an aside, I took this picture almost exactly 20 years ago. This is Korea. Um, Mount Kyersong is a national park, but they have this temple here, which is actually still in use. It's one of the oldest temples in Korea. And uh, it's halfway up this mountain. There's a, a, this beautiful, clear, pristine mountain stream that runs by it. Um, many years ago, some Buddhist monks uh, actually carved prayers into the stones in the river. And the river runs so clear that when you look down at the river, as you walk by the, by the, by the river, you can see the prayers going up. And you can go up to the temple, you can interact, you can go in and out. And it, as I said, it's still in use, and you can see the monks. When you see a, um, a when you see a Buddhist monk, you you used to see him with shaved hair, and then uh, my friends and I that were were touring, we realized that uh, oh these monks they're all females. It's actually they're nuns, which I had never seen before. I thought that was very interesting, but uh, very beautiful place. Okay, when it comes to cultural experiences, um, it's everything that makes up that culture. And it doesn't just have to be based along uh, ethnicity or nationality. Um, there can be micro-cultures. So, for example, I listen to a radio show um, 
it's the drive time in the morning, and they've come up with their own uh, language. So if I say I'm psyched, nobody knows what that means. That means I'm very excited. Or um, I'm a little bit ricky. I'm upset. So there's that microculture from that radio show. So, uh, you know, if you, you find somebody else that listens to that radio show in the local area, you tend to talk this little micro language of being a little bit Rick or Seist or, you know, that person's a donkey or, or what have you. So um, it doesn't just have to be nationality. Okay. Um, just wanted to give a little bit of a story. That, uh, when I was a teenager, I was a camp counselor in California. And we had an uh, exchange counselor from Australia. Very nice young lady. And uh, we had kitchen duty uh, one morning. And we're cleaning up the camp area kitchen. And we're all done. It's all pristine and everything. And I asked a question. And I said, is that your... What is that? What is it? Yes, it's a bum bag. And the United States, we do not say that. And I will never, ever say that word again, ever, in, in, in the lands that do not say that word. Because after I said, is that your... And now, just imagine, she's cleaning a kitchen. She's, she's, she's not thinking of anything. Of, and I say, is that your... And what's the next thing? She punched me like Mike Tyson. And called me, you dirty blah, 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 and I'm laid out on the floor going, what just happened? So the, 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 the director of the camp had to, uh, had to play a little bit of you in there and explain to her that, nope, nope, that's really what we say here, and we're sorry, and he's not a really bad person, and, and convinced me that, you know, that I could work with her because I was now gun-shy around her. So in that context uh, of saying that, there's definitely a problem. Like I said... Um, I won't even say it for context. Um, never, ever again. Um, I think I said it once in front of Donna, and she blushed and shook her head like, ooh, like she just ate a lemon. So I've learned my lesson. Okay, so when you, when you do something like that, you can, you can start to uh, look at uh, certain, uh, certain words, terminology, and especially if you're doing cross-cultural experiences. Uh, you want to, we want to make sure that you're not offending anyone. So uh, a good example in Korea, um, you don't want to write anybody's name in red. Now, this, this is going away a little bit. Um, if, there's, if there's anyone that's Korean in the audience, please, please check me on this. But uh, when I was there 20 years ago, uh, there's um, a superstitious theory that you're writing the person's name in the Book of the Dead if you're writing it in red. You don't want to do that. So, uh, so when you're doing cross-cultural endeavors, just you want to be not only be mindful, but have a way of documenting and, and routinizing and making it official. Okay, so you definitely do in cultural experiences. You want to enhance it. You want to be able to bring out the best of whatever culture that you're dealing with, um, whether it's a national culture um, and it's the the language of the Koreans, which they're, they're very proud of, or the cuisine of France, uh, the art of Italy, what, what have you. But there's also a caveat to that as well, too. Make sure that you do not stereotype. It's very important that you take the best of a culture, but you don't distill it so much that it's demeaning 
or it actually detracts from the true culture itself. So remember, the goal is to actually enhance. Okay, the experience of things, the Internet of Things. This is, uh, I guess, the new, I won't say new, but it's the, a rising buzz term. And there are a lot of things out there now. We have a lot of agents that work for us, a lot of apps for our smartphones, a lot of appliances in our homes and in our offices are doing things on our behalf. And I would submit that they actually have experiences too. Some may say that, uh, well, no, they really don't have experiences. It's the end user that has the experience. They're just working for us. And I would submit to you that the experience of a chauffeur is a lot different than the experience of the person who's being driven in the back of the car. And that that agent that's working for you or working for someone has a different experience than the actual user themselves. So um, who here has heard of Nest? Excellent, good. Nest is a smart uh, air conditioner control unit. Um, It learns by input from the user and by the environment. And it's uh, supposed to be uh, one of the up-and-coming Internet of Things smart devices. I have a friend that just got one. Uh, she just got a new house. It came actually with the house. And it sends her messages routinely. Um, she was pretty good at optimizing it. And uh, that's pretty much what she gets all the time. So what does it mean? It means that uh, pretty much it's bored. Um, and that's a problem with the Internet of Things is that we're giving uh, processors to our refrigerators, our air control units, um, to our microwaves, to, to whatever. And these processes are very powerful, and we're giving them very small, t- minute tasks to do. So on behalf of these agents, what can we get them to do for us? So let's take a look at some things that we might be able to do. Collaboration. So um, let's say you have a smart refrigerator, and there's actually a smart refrigerator that's coming online in the United States now. Uh, actually has a camera on the inside of the refrigerator. So if you're out shopping, you can see what you have. Um, I don't know how how much that's um, pervaded throughout the world, but kind of some scary stuff, I think, in a little bit. But nonetheless, so you have, you have a refrigerator, and then you have something like a Roomba, so a, vac, uh, a smart vacuum cleaner. And uh, the, the advantages of a refrigerator is it's tall, it's commanding, and can kind of see uh, over everything. So... Uh, if you give it the ability to kind of take around, take a look around, it may be able to tell the Roomba, hey, you missed a spot. Um, Now, from the perspective of the Roomba, it's low and down, and it gets into all the nooks and crannies. So it may be able to see a filter uh, on the side that the the owner may never see. So it might be able to get into that crack and say, hey, (laughs) you need to check your air filter. Um, and uh, so then the refrigerator knows that, and then it can send a message to the, to the owner. Peer networking. So if you have the problem of that, uh, that uh, nest where it's bored, uh, you may have one that's frustrated. Let's say somebody buys a nest, and they don't invest the time to program it right, but every time the nest says, uh, are you happy with uh, the temperature, and the person says no, then uh, it might be frustrated. Um, So uh, instead of trying to rely just on that user, 
the ones that have had a, a rich amount of data put in from their users might be able to help the one that's in trouble. Okay. So one of the ones that I think that, that uh, is almost self-evident that what can you do with a, a smart device is it can act as a concierge. And with that, let's say you have your smart refrigerator, you may make the smart refrigerator the agent of choice for all things culinary. So it can go out and find um, warnings and alerts uh, if there's been a food recall, uh, take a look at uh, uh, new trends in nutrition, what have you, be able to take a look at, say, recipes or, or different food to take a look at. But it can also be... Um, so it may be hard to read, but it could, let's say it knows the ingredients that you have inside the refrigerator and says, you know what, that might make a nice stew. Um, let's see if I can go find a stew recipe, go out to Facebook as an agent, uh, log on to Facebook to a, let's say, the Tasty page and say, hey, is there a great recipe for stew? And then it could gather all the responses back and then give them to the user. And then it can also do as well acquisition as well, too, to help. So it can either um, it, uh, do an inventory, say you're low on milk or eggs, or if you trust it, uh, take a look, low on milk and eggs, I'm going to order milk and eggs, and they'll, they'll either be waiting for you at the supermarket or uh, brought to you directly. Okay, global experience. So, this is not an experience in itself from the perspective of how does the world think. Or this is more what should we think of as things being universal. So, these are the experiences as user experience professionals that we should always strive for. And this is, I guess, me getting on a soapbox a little bit. So that when you're taking a look back across of whatever experience you're taking a look at, making sure that you kind of have some of these ideals. And these, this is not inclusive, but this is what, I, what I've been thinking about. Make sure that uh, you're inclusive in the experiences that you provide, accessible, and most of all, do no harm. And the last one is very important because being the folks that model, design, and bring forth experience, we have great power. And to be cliche, that means great responsibility. I think that we can see right now, unfortunately, from my country, uh, the, the election that's going on and some of the stuff that's being bantered back and forth. And I will tell you that a lot of that is not coming directly from the candidates themselves. It's from a team in the back that says that I want to have a certain amount of communication that goes out. And they know what they're doing. They know how to hit a nerve. And it's easy to do that. It's, it's very easy to be able to craft something to say, to get uh, the, the, almost the mob mentality up and going. And going back to the, to the Oracle of Dilbert there, where you have the goal of selling a, a, a million units, uh, which is the goal of the company, uh, opposed to the goal of the end user that wants to have a great product. Uh, do you really want to be able to boost sales 
by doing something that does harm. So for lack of a better term, say maybe tricking the customer or not being completely uh, honest with what you're doing. Perfect example is Volkswagen. Um, so I don't, I don't know if how deep that that went, if the marketing teams knew or who knew, but um, you always have that responsibility. So that's where um, I, I take a look at for um, uh, when, I, when I say global experiences. These are experiences that we want everybody to have, and that's what I mean by that. So with that, that's pretty much all that I have. Uh, I'd like to open up for questions, conversations, discussions. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.